Hey guys, Texas Slim here. I am Texas Slim Podcast. Today's episode is called The Cowboys History of the Internet. I wanted to title it West Texas Cowboys History of the Internet, but it's too many words in the title. So here we are today, folks. I think a lot of y'all know that I, maybe I that I do that I was in big tech. Uh, that I do know technology. I uh, was raised a cowboy, West Texas, agricultural ranching in the belly of the beast of uh, the cattle industry in the United States of America. And what I wanted to do was to do a little reflection on where we've come from when it when we talk about the internet, very few people even know what it is. Uh, they call it the information highway, they call it a lot of things. When I was 19 years old, I packed up my car, left West Texas because the town was dying and I had to go find a life. What I found was Austin, Texas. What I found was technology and it was at a time when uh, the world was changing. The wall had come down, I've talked about that before, but what was going on in Austin, Texas was an incubator uh, for where we came from in the internet. Uh, there's a lot of things about this network that a lot of people across this world do not know. So I wanted to, and I talked with June, our executive producer, let's get back to the source of the seed of this information. What are we doing on the internet? How are we using it from whenever I was 19 years old into where we are using it now? Throughout the last couple of decades, I saw a lot of red flags. I worked in certain industries that basically help engineer where we are right now. Uh, my information and my experience is vast. I started out as a technical support representative for the phone company. It was GTE was my first ever tech job. And I answered the phones and I taught people how to use a mouse, uh, how to use a keyboard and basically customer service and I was self-taught. I worked in restaurants and bars and resorts across the United States. I studied technology uh, at all times. I was around a lot of people that were back in the day called cyberpunks, and we had programmers. We had basically new minds coming into a new industry. Nobody knew where it was going. There was no script. And, but what we had was a lot of innovation that was coming together. It was a perfect storm to basically really innovate with information, with connecting people to uh, other people across the world. And uh, the sky was the limit. Uh, one thing about the internet that a lot of people don't really realize, or the, I don't even know if they would ask the right questions or know how to ask the right questions as far as what the internet started out to be. The internet was an open sourced network. It wasn't closed off. Uh, it had certain layers to it. It was, it was exchanging packets, packets of data, packets of information. We didn't have uh, audio and video in the beginning. We had information exchange and it was fascinating. It was uh, developing a new protocol of life, of uh, education, information exchange, and it was done in a decentralized way and in an open sourced way. Uh, from where we've come, uh, it was fascinating in the beginning. It got, it became very arduous at one time working in technology. Uh, you're probably making pretty good money, but we went from basically uh, indexes to browsers to online software to broadband development, more, uh, more, more information in that pipeline across the internet. We went into online software. We went into innovation in ways of financial. There's many layers 
from when I started within the internet in basically 1990 to where we are now, many layers that have been built on top of each other. I'm wearing some Ariat boots, some Ariat pants. Do you think the Ariat Corporation was selling boots online 20 years ago? They weren't. Now they sell millions of dollars worth of product online. That took a lot of innovation to get to. It took stacking layer upon layer upon layer onto the internet that we know today. With commerce, we developed commerce. That commerce became very centralized. Banking became very centralized as far as portals, gateways across the internet, to where you basically had to have certain types of rights and permissions, encryptions. What we had, though, in the very beginning, we had to develop some protocols. In today's world, I remember when Microsoft 10 came out, and I knew that we were pretty much done with people understanding technology because Microsoft 10, I believe it was, was an operating system that you were supposed to use on your laptops. It was basically the interface, the user interface was nothing more than a smartphone. And with that, as another layer of usability within this thing we call the internet. It has basically separated people from understanding what's going on underneath this top layer of the internet that most people spend their lives on now, from swiping uh, instant videos on TikTok and Instagram. Our attention spans have gone down. Uh, the innovators of the internet of the early days some of them aren't with us, they'd be turning over in their graves. What we've had is a loss of basically peer-to-peer uh, -peer exchange of information throughout the last couple of decades. So moving forward with the Cowboys history of the internet, I think in a visual, very visual way, it made me very effective in, uh, in technology. Uh, the way I think, the way I see things, it was actually being very beneficial coming from small town Texas and having a kind of a cowboy uh, angle of a view to a few things. So we're gonna talk about layers, the layers of the internet. In the beginning, we had, uh, the beginning of the internet was we had DNS, domain name, service. We also had TCP IP. Both of those are a type of a protocol that we developed, that was developed, and we developed on top of. That was the first layer of the internet. It was peer-to-peer, uh, -peer, you know, we had packet exchanges. We had where you could actually exchange information on that first layer of the internet. And then, in the second layer of the internet, we basically had HTTP, FTP. We had basically where you could email. You could do certain types of peer-to-peer -peer exchanges of information. Once again, another layer of protocols. And But what we have now is you have two layers that were established. Didn't know where it was going to go to, but it was something that was free. It was open sourced. It was decentralized. Uh, it had sections to it. It was. It's just not one big internet out there. There's different networks that basically have to have agreements, other nations talking to each other. But what we have now is a third layer. That's when we really started uh, leveraging those uh, two layers of protocols and innovation that had happened. Well, right now we're stuck on that third layer, really, and it's an interface surface level layer. And when I say that, I'm talking about all the social media companies, all these big tech companies, these software companies that basically basically innovated extremely powerfully in that internet, but the more they innovated, the more that they closed off and centralized what we call the internet. They created indexes. We have Google. Guess what, folks? Google isn't the internet. It's just the index that they basically built. We have 
social media. Facebook was one of the first really to start capturing data and really understanding and they really innovated, you know, the like button to deliver dopamine to somebody. To in within the behavior analysis in which they built this third layer, there's been repercussions. We've got short attention spans. Our children are raised with devices in their hands all the way from being in the crib. Uh, what there was, there was a mass opportunity to capture our hearts, our minds, our behaviors in ways that I, the general public really does not understand. And what we need to do as far as a cowboy's basically dissemination of the internet, you need to understand where the beef initiative is operating and where a lot of people are operating these days that really is not effective. And early on, I knew that the ranchers, producers, in the United States of America and across the world would never have a digital voice. They didn't have uh, access. They didn't get the invitation. And they didn't, they weren't asked to innovate within that first two layers of the internet. We're at a point now where it's a form of prohibition of free exchange of information. And a lot of ranchers and producers in agriculture and ranching have been captured in ways. They've been solicited to uh, a level of complacency. Uh, basically, they, they don't have a lot of respect for technology, nor should they. They're ranchers and producers. They need to be out farming the land and stewarding the animals. And instead, they've been asked to go into a infrastructure of an index that is now controlled by a lot of people that are using the internet, that third layer of interface surface level of information, and they're capturing a lot of people's spirits, their, uh, basically their behaviors, and their businesses and their industries. So let's take it a little bit deeper as far as talking about these three layers. But before we go a little bit deeper, I want you to understand where the beef initiative lies and where we're going and where we've been innovating. Of course, a lot of people found me on Twitter. That's where I chose to start because I saw a lot of people really paying attention to eating clean food. I did do my analysis. You know, Twitter is a third layer of the internet. Beefinitiative.com is also a third layer of the internet. But what we're doing is we're pivoting right now. We're pivoting off that third layer and we're becoming an umbrella of protection and of marketing and of beef intelligence and of basically internet intelligence and we're going to pivot away from all of this third layer capture. If you look at the way they've captured the third layer of the internet, a lot of our basically food systems have been ca captured in the same way. And we're pivoting off both of those interface surface level layers, which is a third layer, and we're gonna go a little bit deeper. And we're gonna provide that umbrella of protection and marketing and basically intelligence. I want to introduce Robert Kahn real quick. He was the inventor of the TCPIP. He's a very humble man. Uh, he had a very big vision. And one thing about uh, TCPIP is that in the beginning, you know, they were building bricks. It was foundational. And he talks about that in this video. So let's pivot into this video that was found in the Internet archives and uh, see what you think. Yeah, I'm Bob Kahn, uh, <clears throat> President and CEO of the Corporation for National Research Initiatives. It's a nonprofit organization located uh, in the Reston, Virginia area, about uh, 20 minutes uh, from downtown Washington, D.C. My involvement with the Internet really goes back to the very beginning. Uh, <clears throat> I was involved in the 
design and development of the very first packet switch computer network called the ARPANET and led efforts to create two more. One was a uh, mobile radio network called Packet Radio and uh, another one was a satellite net, Packet Satellite on Intelsat 4 to link uh, U.S. researchers with um, researchers in uh, Europe. In fact, we had links into uh, Italy, Germany, uh, the UK, and Norway. Um, the internet really arose out of the the need to connect those three networks together to make it possible for computers and researchers on any one net to talk to those on the other nets. One of the concerns that I had in the uh, late 1970s uh, was that if anything happened to myself or to then, there would be nobody else in the community that knew what we were trying to make happen with regard to the internet because it was all being driven out of the U.S. government at the time. It's important to understand how the internet evolves. You know, it's got so many participants, different companies, different uh, uh, researchers and the like, and, and somehow it all manages to sort of evolve on an even keel. I think that was due to two things. One, the fact that the internet is actually an open architecture with defined interfaces and protocols that are managed separate from the underlying networks and devices and computers and, and that. So basically what Robert Kahn was saying there is that we're building uh, a layer for the internet that was connecting other networks that were established. But the, the intentions of that early on innovation within TCP IP was basically to have a free exchange of information. It was going to make the world better. It was going to get people actually access in a digital way to information to where they basically save time. They develop new relationships. They were really innovating together. It wasn't a competition. It wasn't something about censoring. It was actually free exchange of information. And that's what a lot of people need to understand. It was foundational to basically let you freely exchange intelligence in a way that you felt that you could and you could do it securely without having to really worry about anything. Times have changed. There have been very few major architectural changes in the internet the, over the years. There, there are clearly discernible changes, like the internet started out mainly as a text-based kind of communications medium, and in recent years it's gotten much more graphics-oriented, a lot of images flowing over the net. Uh, it's gotten uh, much more able to deal with uh, some of the other media like uh, audio. Um, increasingly, we're seeing video come, come over the Internet. And I think that, that trend will continue as more and more broadband capabilities are deployed around the world. Uh, I think we're also seeing a major impact of wireless. Uh, people who are able to stay connected almost 24 hours in the day, wherever they are, um, you can't get quite the same kind of display screens on a little cell phone, but we're seeing larger screens come out. We're seeing uh, all kinds of other kinds of devices, including, you know, wireless glasses that can, you know, give you large screen images or the equivalent. So those, those are pretty well known and understood features of the Internet, but that's mainly kind of evolving the current architectural paradigm. 
One thing that he brings up is that in the beginning it was about text. When I say, I say data exchange across packets exchange, what he meant is it's text. You were basically writing a letter, uh, you were exchanging uh, reports, and it was a textual based system, which was great. That's where it needed to start out. Uh, there was not much broadband that was a little, uh, even there to understand how to get much more with uh, video, audio, the different types of mediums that now we basically rely on. What that means is that that created a whole new visual for people throughout the interface, uh, looking at what you were looking at, and basically the creation of you know the way that we were using medium from TV to internet to school books to textual-based delivery of information to audio and video graphical. We've come a long ways uh, with that. Once again, we've took away basically the intentions of the internet to really exchange information in a very useful, very sovereign way, very decentralized way into more of a capture of imagination and a behavioral uh, change that's definitely happened because we've basically built that multimedia into the internet in the way which we have. The issues for the internet are less likely to be technical ones than they are likely to be um, policy kinds of questions. I mean, within the, uh, the nations of the world, where the, uh, the uptake for uh, where the uptake for the internet is, is, is sort of growing and expanding, uh, even as we speak in some of the developing countries. Uh, the, the challenge is how to get some ownership and participation. So the real question is how to enable the countries of the world to play a more active role in the evolution of the internet than I think they currently feel they have. Uh, many of those countries think that the the U.S. is in control of the Internet. I, I would challenge that notion because I think we've worked very hard over the last 30 years to devolve as much of that from government into the private sector. But there's still a focus on uh, one organization, ICANN, which deals with domain names and IP addresses as if somehow it's in control. It really is only a a small part of the, it's an important part, but it's only a small part of the internet. So I think how we deal with all these competing policy issues is really going to be the major issue for us uh, in going forward with the internet. We have, uh, as a result of a couple of world summits, a series of forums that have been set up called Internet Governance Forums, which is a place where people can come together to discuss what it is that uh, they that's on their minds about the internet, uh, approaches they want to take and the like. Um, is there a way to uh, kind of adjudicate between policies that might compete with each other? Not, not really yet. Uh, on the other hand, uh, you know, the internet is, is a sufficiently robust architectural design that it doesn't really spell out what the underlying networks have to do. And in fact, one of the big uh, issues of the future is probably going to be what actually is the internet. There are many people who think of it as a kind of network and you know, at the best you could view it perhaps as a virtual network of some sort but the internet is about <clears throat> linking together networks of different kinds. So the networks themselves are just components of this architecture but the internet architecture itself is about the protocols 
to allow them to be. You heard Mr. Khan talk about policy issues being one of the biggest problems within the internet. We have policy issues across this world right now. We have countries basically that are vying for permission for your basically data. We've come a long ways and uh, the technology has never been the difficult part. I remember basically having the most robust technology in, you know, at your fingertips in telecommunications. They have over 20 new innovations at any one time on the shelf. The reason we can't get there is because there was always uh, a basically a true understanding of how to use the internet and what they've done is basically they've captured the usability. Uh, a little bit further on down this podcast, you're going to hear about behavioral and psychological things that basically uh, we've had to deal with now and we deal with it in society. So how do we get back to this type of mindset that we're trying to kind of paint a visual for you? Well, we, we pivot. We Whenever I first started the Beef Initiative, that was my very first thing that I needed to do within myself first and then to where I could articulate this. We need to pivot back into that basically philosophy and the innovation mindset that we had back then. We need to do that within the beef industry. We need to do that within basically truth and food. We need to do that within uh, building community and basically, you know, getting back to where it's a peer-to-peer exchange whenever you are developing relationships so you want to be a part and be a supporter of those that feed you well you come through the beef initiative portal and that gives you an umbrella to where you can go shake a rancher's hand and begin that decentralized mindset decentralized relationship to where you're not relying on other layers of the internet to do your validation for you or your verification for you so that the amount of networks that Mr. Khan spoke of, well, that's what we're reinventing within the Beef Initiative. We are a group of networks that is living back into that second layer of the internet, and we're basically going to have a lot of success because it's a new day and time in this innovation. And now we're going to kind of shift over to Paul Makapetris. He was basically the inventor of DNS, Doname Name Service. What that was was a naming convention that basically was you having rights on this, what we call the internet. Uh, It was a network and you really only had to have permission from one uh, source. That was the domain name provider that you were going to be able to do your .com, beefinitiative.com. We only answered to that one .com basically provider. So let's take a look and let's get familiar with DNS first and then we'll move on from there. You are credited with inventing the DNS, I believe? That's true, Carl. And what did that consist of? Well, you know, the original work was a, a set of RFCs that talked about the principles behind the DNS and then how you might go about implementing it. Um, we kind of like did one version and then they got rebaked as the famous RFCs 1034 and 1035. So, you know, I really invented the foundation and then over the years people have added other stuff on top of it. So it's now a 10-story building and maybe I did the foundation on the first floor. And what made you think of this, this brilliant invention? Oh, uh, you know, it's more find a need and fill it. Um, there was a need to do something that was more distributed than um, a single host table. Um, and in, rea- in reality, I think it turned out to be one of the influences that let the, 
let the uh, internet be more viral, let people manage their own domain. You only had to interact with the gods that be at the uh, SRI NIC once, and then you got to manage everything after that yourself within your own space. So it allowed people to work uh, on their own without having to constantly go back for new parameters from the central authorities. I like how he says central authorities. It gave you your personal space in which you could function on. It was something that was now we know is called the metaverse, really. What you were able to do is you had your own network and you established who you were. You had your own domain name, befinished.com, texasslimscuts.com, iamtexasslim.com. We all participate in it now, but once again, who are the central authorities that are controlling whenever I go out there and purchase that .com? Let's go a little bit deeper here. I mean, you know, there was another, uh, I think the most obvious blown call, I call it a technobabble denial of service attack, was that for many years ICANN was telling us that we couldn't add new top-level domains because it would affect the security and stability and it was dangerous and so forth and so on. Uh, this was in the context of generic top-level domains like, you know, .eu or .asia or, or whatever. Um, in the meantime, we added 200, you know, country code top-level domains. And then somebody finally said, well, gee, you know, the DNS doesn't know. So, you know, it was a case where there was a, a false argument that was being made uh, that it was, you know, a technical problem when in reality it was a political one. And, the, and so, I, you know, I worry a little bit about the TDOS attacks. I think there's uh, several of those in the works. What's a TDOS? It's a technobabble denial of service attack. It's where you say no to somebody on the basis of technical reasons that are fallacious, um, but you expect that the people you're making the argument to, you know, can't just say no bullshit and go read RFC 1034. <laughs> um, what about the NS security then? Is, is that going to happen and is it important? Uh, you know, I think it's important. I think it should happen. Um, you know, I don't think that there's, uh, you know, more than a decade's worth of technical work there, but the problem is, is that the, it's taken so long that the political landscape has gone back and forth. You know, the, uh, in the post-9-11 post world, people have different you know, ideas about the trade-offs between um, you know, privacy and individual rights and the legitimate needs of law enforcement. So. I like how he brings in right there, it became a political issue. Uh, the name of countries, 200 countries, you know, we got their dot-coms, but you know, based on dot-Asia, uh, dot-New Zealand, and the, the amount of information and nefarious actually understanding what was possible and what people were already engineering to take control of something that was very simple. It was something that was uh, useful across this globe, and it didn't have a lot of interaction from governments, from the political players, the policy makers, and it's interesting that he brought that up in that interview to know what we know now and who is now basically positioning themselves with more, basically, I call it nefarious information about where we are within security within the internet and how simple he said that it should be, how it could have been, but once again, the type of information that the general public and the ranchers, producers get from 
their industries and their perspectives as far as being consumers is it's come a long ways and it's about to ramp up in a way that is a form of censorship from having access to free flowing information across this bundle of networks that we've basically put together through these protocols. And now I want you to uh, pay attention to what Tim Berners-Lee has to say. He was the inventor of HTTPS. His vision was pretty much about mid-90s, I would say, and he really nails it of what he was pretty much afraid of, what, he, what kept him up at night, and how we started linking in the Internet. I'm not going to go into a lot of technical jargon here, but whenever you started seeing links and dollar signs, he saw that there was going to be big issues moving forward. I, I, I tried to write this talk to be cynical, and it's not in my nature, so, uh, I fig so forgive me if I make a mess of it. Uh, but in, in fact, I, I think we've, I, I've seen this sort of thread of bitterness, and, which I don't share, so I, 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 maybe I'll, I'll try and turn that off a little bit. So I still have a dream that the web could be less of a television channel. Uh, uh, and more of a sea of interactive shared knowledge. The idea is that we are immersed in something which is a warm, friendly environment made of those things which we have seen, we have heard, we believe, or we have figured out. And it's interactive. I met somebody uh, just upstairs over lunch who said that uh, a few weeks ago he discovered that in fact the World Wide Web pro program, the original uh, the, the, the original browser editor was in fact an editor and in fact you could make links as easily as you could follow them. And that was fundamental. Uh, it seems to me, there are two things which seem to be totally bizarre. One of them is the fact that you can't do that, that we've lost that. So in fact the thing is not interactive. I don't know if I can think of any hypertext Exper uh, experiments in the research side where you haven't been able to make links just as easy. The, the, the authorship has really been right up there. And now for sudden, some, some historical quirk, which I could go into, I have gone into and I won't go into, uh, we have a whole load, bunch of things out there which are browsers. So that's the first thing I'm a little embarrassed about. And the second thing I'm embarrassed about is the fact that, uh, of course, when you made the links and you edited the text on the screen, you didn't see any of these URLs and, uh, and HTML and all this stuff. And the, the, the weirdest thing for me if you can imagine, is to see an advertisement in the Help Wanted of the Boston Globe saying they want HTML writers or HTML programmers. I mean, give me a break. It's like asking somebody to come along with the skills to write a Microsoft Word file in binary. Uh, the whole thing is totally inappropriate. I think that's probably uh, kind of an eye-opener for everybody for a Help Wanted sign saying HTML. It wasn't even needed. Once again, compartmentalizing uh, a big opportunity that could have been interactive. It could have been freely shared information, but what they did, they started shutting off gates of free access flow of information. And whenever you have somebody that you can look back historically, really visioning where this could go wrong, where it should have gone right, we can look at people's behaviors. Everybody out there thinks that the browsers were always there. I remember when Netscape was the, was the number one browser in the world, and then this company called Google came along. Basically, they hijacked usability, they hijacked the network, and I loved them in the beginning. But now let's see where we are as far as indexes and free-flowing interactive information in a peer-to-peer -peer way. A little while later, people say, hey, 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 links are cool, man. And the, uh, the Click Here Brigade 
seized the public uh, imagination and been seized by the public imagination. They're rushing all over making these uh, way cool links. And, uh, and, that, and that was a phase. And then the link now implies readership. You make a link. For the guy at the end of the link, this is interesting to him. We haven't even got Xanadu and we've got, we haven't got trans copyright, but still the guy is very interested in his readership. You make a link and a number of things happens. The guy's ego goes up. His sort of citation rating goes up. He starts checking the referrer field and he starts logging to find out what sort of people are reading his stuff. And, he starts to, and pretty soon he starts writing within the document a, a profile of the people he's found the, that are an, an explanation of how many people. And you find these little counters. Have you seen these little counters on the web that you come across saying, uh, no, you know, this document is about, by the way, you were the 3,421st person to read it. What pops up in my head is how many likes do you have from what he just stated? Um, what is the intentions? Who is providing you information? Uh, what is it based on? And what type of technology supports this type of interface surface level behavior on the internet? Uh, once again, he's able to paint a picture that we didn't have to be where we are. And where we are right now, are you really getting the best source of information in a peer-to-peer -peer interactive way that is improving your life? Or is it just causing more, cons I'd say, confusion, anxiety, um, in a way to where it keeps you always guessing? That like button, it does more than just... Uh, basically clicks numbers it also it has something to do with your behavior too and then for some people now the association is the link with the dollar now that's an interesting one now it's not it's, yes it's an interesting one because it means that there's all this commercial stuff pushing the pushing the web technology and, and it turns the world upside down and it gives it a, a sort of a slant which it hasn't had uh, which it didn't have when hypertext was a good old academic field but uh, it's, but it's, what's interesting about it is, is that the link is the unit in hypertext and the dollar is the unit in one of the simplest models of the micro, the, uh, the, the government the behavior of people so we've had two systems. We've had the behavior of people, which we generally regard as something which computer, science ought not to get, computer scientists ought not to get involved in. And we have the behavior of hypertext, which for a long time other people felt that people, human beings ought not to get involved in. And we have them kind of linked together. And this suggests to us that, in fact, we should not simply talk about hypertext and evolve hypertext. I love what he says, and I knew this early on within the internet, the people that I'd met, computer scientists should not be in charge of behavioral analysis. Whenever this third layer of the internet actually had some legs to it and the amount of people that basically started engineering behavior from a computer science perspective, then there was uh, red flags in my head. There was uh, red flags in a lot of people. But computer scientists should not be social engineering uh, the behavior of our users. We should have actually a different group of people that are in charge of behavior analysis when it comes into the the use of the internet the, the the that layer which has been pretty much captured by very few companies and corporations across this globe 
I'm going to wrap this up with a few summaries here, and we're going to talk about Bitcoin. And a lot of people are confused by it. Don't be. It's okay if you are. Don't be intimidated. It, it takes education. It takes transformation. It takes adoption. It takes a lot of experimentation. It takes a lot of innovation that I'm very excited about. The Bitcoin layer network, basically, it's part of that second layer. We're hanging out there with HTTP. Uh, we're doing something that's never been done before. It's, uh, it's not the stock market. It's not a cryptocurrency. It's basically its own layer of the second layer of the internet. We get to play around down there. And a lot of people don't realize that the Beef Initiative, we're pivoting off of that third layer that all these big dogs are playing and they have all the censorship with social media and food and everything else that we deal with as far as monetary systems. What we're gonna do is we're not gonna go to that fourth and that fifth and that sixth layer that they're trying to say Web3. What we're gonna do is we're gonna pivot back down. We're gonna get back to the source of the seed of where all this came from within technology and within beef. So that's gonna be the fascinating ride. That's why you don't call me an influencer, because I'm not. And I'm not about competition here, folks. One thing in that second point in this summary is that I'm sitting right here in the Texas Panhandle. And you know what we've had is we've had amazing amounts of rain, and we've had a lot of things happen to this landscape here throughout the years and throughout my lifetime. You know what? I come from commodity cowboy country. I am right now surrounded in commodity land when it comes to beef. And I'm here to tell you, this is not a competition. What I believe is that regenerative farming and ranching is the best protocol moving forward. Moving forward. I do not judge anybody in the commodity beef market. You've done what you've had to do in so many different reasons, and you have to answer to so many different layers. Well, what we're going to do is we're going to eliminate those layers that basically do not let you steward your land and your animals. And we're going to get down to brass tacks. We've got a better business plan, I feel, and the Beef Initiative feels, and those ranchers and producers that are coming in. They're ready to get back in a foundational way. This is fundamental. You heard that before when we were just listening to the internet and where it came from. This is fundamental foundational change within the beef industry and within animal protein and within basically clean food. It's getting us back to truth in food and that's what's so exciting. This is not an instant gratification like on TikTok or Instagram. This is something that we're innovating, and we're going to innovate hard, and you're going to come with us. You just don't know when yet. But I tell you when, it's whenever you go shake that rancher's hand. And of course, that takes us into podcasting 2.0 and basically our boost section. Uh, if you guys have not downloaded the Fountain app, do it now, Fountain app. And also, two point, podcasting 2.0 is something you need to pay attention to. I'm just going to say it right out here. Uh, Adam Curry, uh, he's been a great innovator and basically, you know, he is the podfather. 
What we have here with Podcasting 2.0 is we have something called RSS. Uh, we have something that is a free exchange of information. It's decentralized in a way with Podcasting 2.0. There's a lot to understand. And for all of you out there right now that are just listening to this podcast, I understand it. I promote it. I encourage it. But I always talk about you need to change your consumption model. I mean audio, video, and food. What we're asking you to do, not only listen to these podcasts, but also, basically, you need to watch what we're doing with the visuals through YouTube. I am Texas Slim on YouTube. You're going to listen, you're going to watch, and then you're going to spread and share. Just like these guys are sending us sats, they're spreading the information. They're using Podcast 2.0. It's decentralized information exchange within sound communications, folks. Here, let's, uh, let's look out. Here's Gene Everett. Hey, Gene man it's good to hear and see you 33,333 sats boost is what gene says and of course we got bubba bubba was just here in west texas we got him fixed up he's going to go down there and meet us in luling texas at hometown meets with cole bolton and clyde with two bar city ranch and we're gonna i don't know spend a week down there we're gonna be doing some story kits and some media kits so here's what Bubba has to say with 20,000 sats. Hey, so many ranchers, so much beef. Let's go shake a hand. Thanks, Bubba. Appreciate you, brother. Then we have Cole McCormick 1, uh, 9,999 sats, saying, let's regenerate America. I agree, Cole. Let's, uh, let's join this uh, cattle drive. The modern-day cattle drive is what it is. And then we've got uh, Joel W. There you are, Joel. Good to see you again. He's got 1,111 sats. The only bad cow is one that never makes it to someone's plate. There you go. Thank you. Thank you, Joel. And then, of course, we have Bicycle Bitcoin Boost 100 sats. Thanks, Bicycle. Okay. Here we go, folks. A lot of technology coming your way. Don't be intimidated. Don't be frustrated. That's why we're here. We've built a we built an umbrella of information for you. The Beef Finish truly is a technology company. We come with proof of work that is decades long. We're not going to ask for permission to innovate within technology. We're not going to ask for permission to innovate within the beef industry. Everything that we do is extremely solid. It's proven. And it comes from basically our technologists. It comes from our research and analysis. It comes from all of our volunteers. It comes from basically our ranchers themselves. We want to spread this word. We're relying on you. I say it all the time. You are the marketing arm for the great American rancher producer. This is a health initiative that is my intentions for everything that I've done within the Beef Initiative and Food Intelligence and Beef Intelligence is to save children's lives. This is not a competition, folks. This is a collaboration. This is innovation. This is innovation back into that layer two of the internet. It's there. We're trying to bring you along. This is a modern day cattle drive. We're all gonna get there together. We're all gonna help each other out. Producers, reach out. Go to thebeefinitiative.com. Let's partner up any which way you want. This is a collaboration. I'm going to keep on saying it. This is a collaboration. This is not competition. I'm not judging anybody for any place that they are within technology or within beef. You're trying to feed your family. You're trying to live your best life possible. Let's do it together. We have an amazing team. We have an amazing roadmap ahead. I'm doing this for all the right reasons. 
my son, I want to leave him a legacy that he can look at and say, damn, dad provided the best food possible for me so I could have some sovereignty in my life. He provided the best information so I wouldn't have to be trapped on this basically 10th layer of the internet whenever he becomes my age. We're gonna take people to the source of the seed of sovereignty, of basically stewardship of your mind, body, and spirit. I am Texas Slim. Are you?